0: This is where we live. I'm John Dankowski. As we get ready to tuck into our turkeys to run our road races and watch our parades, I think it's fair to say we've got a lot to be thankful for in the wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. The state capitol has given us a bounty, a cornucopia of topics to talk about this year, and today is no different. We'll consider the on-again, off-again plan to dismantle the state's clean election laws, and we'll look at the votes by two Connecticut congressmen on Syrian refugees you can join the conversation 860-275-7266. comment on our website wnpr.org slash where we live and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us, as always, is Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hello, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dan Joining us from the Connecticut is the Capitol Bureau Chief, Mark Pazniokas. Hello, Paz. Good morning, John. And Christine Stewart, the editor of ctnewsjunkie.com. Hi there, Christine. Hi, John. So we're going to start with, well, the gift that just keeps on giving the state budget. Budget negotiations continue between Governor Daniel Malloy and legislative leaders. They're expected to continue next week. At one point during the negotiations yesterday, legislative leaders met privately without the governor.
1: The governor had his prop- proposals in the legislature. We've had our separate proposals, so we wanted to see where we could get and, and kind of flesh out some of the issues that we may have had with each other substantively.
0: That's Republican Themis Clarities. And Governor Malloy seemed happy to
2: sit this particular meeting out. I don't think we made... Uh, Before today, nearly enough progress, Um, and uh, I think that we need to try to speak with one voice, uh, which begins by legislative leaders talking to one another.
0: Okay, so this is all very interesting, and Paz and Christine, you're the guys who spend all the time working with these folks down at the Capitol trying to figure out what they're doing. Um, what, What do we know about where these negotiations are right now, Paz?
2: Oh, what do we know? What do we know? Uh, We know that the House Democrats and the Senate Democrats at different times have uh, had their own differences with each other. Um, We know that the governor and the House Speaker have come down on one side on the wisdom of a retirement incentive plan. Um, We do know what the various moving pieces are. It's a question of which ones make the final cut. We know that the legislature as an institution functions on deadlines and it's necessary for somebody to impose a deadline, whether it's real or artificial, and that seems to be what what happened yesterday.
0: Functions is an interesting word, Pat. It is. I mean, is that really the word you mean
2: to use? It's they on work the eve, on deadline. On the they tend to do things on deadline, but do um, they function I'm feeling on the, deadline. the warmth of friends and family, so yes, <laughs> function. <laughs> That's Damn it, I say function.
3: <laughs> okay. Well, they, they actually said yesterday, they're like, well, we need to set a deadline for ourselves because we work better with a deadline. Yeah. Um, but I, I think for the most part, um, the, the news out of... Yesterday was that the Office of Fiscal Analysis came back with numbers and the retirement incentive program is not going to get them as much in savings as they'd hoped for in the 2016 budget. So I think it's fair to say that that's probably off the table right now. Well, and, and it was going to be off the table anyway, because Malloy would have never agreed to it.
0: Malloy would have never agreed. to Can we just talk that through a little bit? I mean, we heard from Governor Malloy a number of times that retirement incentives just aren't something that he wants to talk about. He doesn't think that there's any long-term savings at all. He thinks that that actually costs the state money. So can we just talk about how we got to the point where we talk so much about retirement incentives, and then, then they end up off the table again?
3: Well, I, I think that, you know, obviously it's an easy way to fix this year's budget crisis, and so it's an easy fix, but you don't think about how much it's going to cost down the road. So um, these plans over the Roland and Rell administrations have cost $2 billion in unfunded pension liabilities, and and I think Dan Malloy sees, and he has, uh, you know, um, the ability to see that the state's unfunded pension liability is going to begin, if they don't fix this, to crowd out spending and other legislative priorities.
2: The, the menu of options, rarely changes from year to year to year. There's only so many places you can go, only so many pools of money when the state is facing a crunch like this. So that's why the same ideas come up time and time again. Um, The idea of offering people an extra two or three years credit to get the higher paid people out the door now, it saves you some money now. But as Christine just said, it adds to an already overburdened pension system. Now, the retirement incentive may be hard to do but the idea of somehow dealing with pension debt and trying to save some money now i mean the governor has suggested we got to basically stretch out uh, the time period in which we we make good on the pension debt because we're facing this gargantuan balloon payment in about 2030, which... A completely
0: unrealistic balloon payment Absolutely. which nobody thinks we would possibly ever make. Right,
2: and if you saw this graphically, which does not work well on radio, picture a mountain and and then a cliff, <laughs> and in 2030, there's like this huge mountain that goes up. <laughs>
3: and then, and then th- it drops
2: off. And then it drops off. And so you're not going to pay it. So Marty Looney is saying, well, hey, if the governor is actually suggesting flattening this mountain out into a, a, a more sensible way to deal with this problem, problem. But the governor's talking about doing it in a way that really wouldn't provide any fiscal benefit until like 2019. So Marty Looney, the Senate president, is saying, I have an idea. <laughs> Why don't we flatten that out earlier? Lower, you know, try to try to improve the bottom line now. So pensions, uh, ultimately, I, I know this is complicated, but pensions ultimately may be part of the mix, whether they do a retirement incentive or not.
1: I, you know, first of all, one thing, we, we actually can see a re- retirement incentive program in action in a smaller microcosm. It's going on at the Hartford Current right now, and one of the things that people don't ever talk about when they do it at the state level is presumably you're getting rid of some of your more experienced people, um, you know, early. Uh, and, I mean... You Absolutely. Know, it, so there are some risks there in terms of the competent functioning of state government. I mean, who cares about that? But, like, let's just say we did care at some point. Um, I care. Yeah, so, but <laughs> I have a question for the two of you. Does anybody really know what the damn deficit is right now? I mean, I've seen so many different numbers from O. I mean, I thought OFA had it at like two hundred, at a quarter of a billion, but then it's three hundred and thirty, then it's three hundred and seventy, then it's less. Does anybody really know what gap it is they're trying to close? Well, I,
0: And I'll say, and I asked the governor about this. We, they basically had to agree to what the gap is, even though none of them agree actually on what the number is.
3: No.
2: That's right. And What's the number they're dealing with? 350 now? They're dealing with 350. Okay. Yeah. So, but you also have to keep in mind that that's there not are, a true deficit. Right. Uh, well, yeah. Oh, don't it's get sh- me started. No, 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 no we're <laughs> not going to go there. <laughs> anyway, please continue. Uh, right. We're not accountants. You don't have to close the books and then say, aha, there's a yeah, deficit. Yeah. There, is a, there is a shortfall. There is a gap in the current fiscal year. There are also projections of problems in the out years, the year after that and the year after that. So it can be very confusing, I think, for consumers of news. It can be very confusing for producers of news to keep all this straight. You're dealing with multiple fiscal years. Obviously, to the extent you close a gap this year, you lessen the problems in the out years. So anything smart they do this year to close the gap, the benefits will multiply in the out
0: years.
1: If it's not a a one-time
2: thing. Absolutely, if it's not a one-time thing.
0: Yes. It, well, OK. So, no, uh, well, you know, he's absolutely right. Well, well, one thing that this has brought up, Christine, you mentioned this all, already, is that there are differences within the Democratic caucus. Now, the Republican leadership, House and Senate, they came on my program. They seem to have a united front about what Republicans think they should do around the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, w- why the differences between what's happening in the House and the Senate amongst Democrats?
3: I I think the main difference between those two is the retirement incentive program. I mean, that's that's the biggest um, difference. Both of them ended up um, going back and restoring money for the citizens election program. So take that off the table. Um, You know, I I I think that House Speaker Brendan Sharkey has always been against retirement incentive programs. And, you know, he wanted to know what it would do to the state's unfunded pension liability. And um, I, I think that. Martin Looney understands that if you you close the deficit now that the problem isn't going to be as big down the road and you can make changes to the pension system.
0: Is it fair to say that the Republicans are actually part of the negotiation here? I mean they've been calling for years to let us be part of this, uh, of this system of actually trying to solve the budget problems of the state – Uh, They are repeatedly shut out of negotiations uh, during regular sessions. Now it seems like they're actually in the negotiations. Are they really part of this, Christine?
3: No, I think they are really part of it. I think that um, the Democrats have adopted some of the ideas the Republicans have put forward. I mean, they were out with their plan before the Democrats were out with their plan. And I think they are participating. In 2012, they participated in the deficit mitigation also you know success yeah. has
1: many fathers and failures an orphan one way to get at to the table in a situation is a situation like this where nobody really wants to sign the final thing right i mean whatever they come up with it's going to be highly unappetizing uh, and, and so i think it's easier if you're the minority party to get in the room to be involved in coming up with this highly unappetizing thing that nobody's going to like anyway everybody's going to be happy to share the the blame basically with you. I I did love the other day when they met without Malloy, uh, Senator Fasano, the Republican leader, came out and said that they'd made more progress uh, than they had heretofore. And then he said, Nothing against the governor. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I, I will just ask, Pat, since you seem to be in a charitable mood today, does this, does this set some sort of a template for how we might address these issues in the future? Because I think it's fair to say this is not the last wrangle that we'll have over how to solve long-term structural budget problems at the state level. And the fact that we actually are bringing uh, both houses on both sides together with the governor to try to solve a smaller problem— While we have these bigger problems looming, maybe this is, I don't know, a sign of better things
2: to come. Nah. Come on. Really? You don't think so? (laughs) The test will be – well, there will be several tests. But one of the tests will be will there be actual rank-and-file Republicans voting for whatever unpleasant – mess, they not mess, but whatever, I mean, Colin's right, whatever they come up with, it will be unappetizing to one degree or another. And if one of the joys of being in the minority is you're not responsible for making sure there's a budget at the end of the day or a deficit mitigation plan, as the case may be, at the end of the day. So will Len Fisano and Themis claritas bring along their members? And you have to look at this in the larger context of we are on the eve of an election year for the General Assembly. Um. So it's a multi-level game being played here. Some of it's fiscal, but some of it's political. Everybody has one eye on on how stuff's going to play in the 2016 elections.
0: Well, I know that Governor Malloy really has a couple of big priorities that he put forward in some of the decisions he already made and that he wants to continue to talk about, and And they're not actually about cuts to anything, Christine, because nobody wants to talk about the ways in which they're cutting state government, but he really wants to make sure we preserve funding for a big transportation plan, and he really wants to make sure that we put some tax breaks, especially tax breaks to roll back some of what happened around corporate taxes during the last legislative session. Does it seem likely that in the crisis that we're in that we're going to agree to some of those things, keeping some money in transportation, making sure that we also make some tax breaks for corporations as well?
3: I think so. I think what was interesting is that the Democrats came out with their proposal and they delayed some of the um, money we would collect from the sales tax going towards transportation for a few months. Um, but they also did that for their own initiative for um, the car tax. Uh, you know, So I think that he is going to try to preserve the transportation funding. And I think that uh, what was the other question? No, uh, I'm it, a transportation funding, <laughs> but there's
0: also there's also taxes. I mean, he he wants to oh, make sure that on to, yes. top of all this, and, and we talk an awful lot. I mean, we're just getting a tweet from Stephen who says income inequality is higher than ever recorded. Taxes as percentage of GDP are, GDP are never lower. Why aren't we talking about revenue? And that's a total third rail. When I talk to anybody at the state capital, you know, should we think about raising more revenue, maybe from top income earners in the state? Everyone wants to run far, far away from that. Maybe it's because of the upcoming election year. But they also say, well, look, we don't want corporations or high-income earners to leave the state. I mean, are, are we going to have a serious conversation about tax breaks baked into this entire pot in which we need to actually save money in the state budget?
3: Well, I, I think that they have put forward the what the governor has put forward to um, give businesses uh, a little bit of a break. I think it's under $10 million that we'll be putting back into the budget for that. And he has said he wants to go forward with that whether they do these spending cuts or not. You know that he wants to make sure that they go forward with a special session and make sure that they send business a message. And and I think if you look at GE, I think GE's down to um, you know uh, there was news articles that they uh, were not considering Georgia in, anymore. So I think it's down between New York and Connecticut again.
1: It's it's really New York and Connecticut, Colin. I, the only thing that I would say about that is I I feel like somehow or other because. The, the corporate tax issue or the business environment issue. I think that's sort of the better way to talk about it. So, you know, the, the notion that Connecticut's a, a bad business environment, it, it gets discussed in such a gauzy and broad way. And, and the, it's, it's that sort of bad cases make bad law argument. So then the solutions are not necessarily as well targeted as they could be. The reality is, if you want to look at the thing that really affects businesses and affects everybody, it's the property tax, right? I mean, you know, GE, as we as was well documented, they don't pay corporate taxes. So that's never been the problem. But if you want to look at something that would probably, if you want to target your relief somewhere, the property tax, first of all, businesses have to pay property tax. Their employees have to pay, pay property taxes. All the rest of us have to pay property property taxes, if you were going to direct relief in a meaningful way that would probably make Connecticut a more attractive place to do business, that's where I would put my effort.
2: A- GE is not the the, the the best poster child for what's wrong with the business tax structure, the business climate in Connecticut. They are really their own case. And w- it, Collins Collins right. GE generally does not pay a lot of taxes, so it's a little silly to reconstruct your try to reconstruct your business environment to please them. Um, The problem with doing major property tax relief is you've got to raise the money elsewhere. Mm. And you don't want to do that at a time when you're also filling in a big hole. So – that may be difficult to do in this environment. You may have to wait till you get to a, a place, a time, if there is such a time and place, <laughs> where there's a revenue neutral way to yeah. a magical time the and place that we all dream spot. of. <laughs> well, you keep, you keep reading about. Well, you know, we're about due for another like slight recession, and and you know, if that's the case, it's like, hey, folks.
0: Jr.: it's
3: never going to happen before an election year and, and, you know.
0: And that's really the key is what is the timing in which we ever do this? There there is none. We have elections every two years. We're running elections longer and longer. And because of that, we're constantly in the state of not ever
2: being able to really deal with these issues. You also had major tax increases in 2011 and last year. So you get you get these shots every few years to do this. And, you know, your commenter makes a valid point about the share of taxes, taxes as a percentage of the GDP. Absolutely. But that's not how most taxpayers look at it. They look at what they're paying. Um, So this probably is not the political environment, whether it makes fiscal or economic sense is a broader discussion. But it's it's not the political environment to say, hey, we're going to whack the talk. Rate now, or, or raise the top rate rather. Bernie
1: B- Sanders, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> before we,
0: <laughs> but before we take a break, I just have to ask. So they're meeting behind closed doors still, Christine. I mean, do we end up with a special session before Christmas? Uh,
3: yeah, they're looking at the second week of December for a special session. So, and they're going to meet again on Tuesday.
0: And does the special session just deal with what is on the table as far as uh, filling this hole, or does it actually tackle some of the things that the governor wants to make sure that we do, like have? that transportation lockbox so that he can go ahead and start putting more money into the transportation fund?
3: I think they could do that if they're going to do a special session. I think they're going to try to get as much of that done um, so the problem isn't as big.
2: Is
0: there there will for a lockbox up there, Paz?
2: You're spoiling the General Assembly's Christmas gift for the governor. Come on.
3: It's supposed
0: to be a surprise. Okay, well, I've got a Christmas gift for you uh, coming up right after the break. We're going to talk about the state spending cap. Yeah. Attorney General Jepsen announced last week the spending cap approved by voters in 1992 actually has no legal effect. Well, that that should be a lot of fun to talk about. We love to talk about that. We'll also talk about campaign finance, and we'll talk about a few Connecticut congressmen who took controversial stances on Syrian refugees. You can call us at 860-275-7266, comment on our website, wnpr.org, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. It's Wednesday, so is The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, the final wheelhouse before Thanksgiving. Uh, Christine Stewart is here, editor of ctnewsjunkie.com, Mark Pasniokas, the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror, and always with us is Colin McEnroe, the host of WNPR's
1: Colin McEnroe Show. What is on your show today, Colin? Well, you know, uh, people are about to head into their Thanksgiving dinners and they're going to have arguments, right? They're going to be debating things. People have different views about Syrian refugees and climate change and all kinds of stuff. And they think that they can change the mind of the other person. We're actually doing a show on (laughs) why it's so hard to change somebody's mind, why it's so hard to even change your own mind. And we're talking to... Neurolinguists and psychologists, and people who actually have changed their minds about things.
0: That's a great show. Okay, so okay, coming up this afternoon on the Colin McEnroe Show at 1 o'clock. Before we get to uh, some of the back-and-forth over changes to the state's campaign uh, finance system, let's go to something that we heard from Attorney General George Jepson announcing last week that the spending cap approved by voters in 1992 has no legal effect. Now, we've talked about the spending cap as a reason why or why not to do things around the state budget for years. But this announcement by the attorney general, I, I don't know, Paz, it sort of sounds it sounds like the thing we
2: already knew. I'm wondering what impact you think uh, this has. Well, I would make the obvious observation that Connecticut's problem right now is not c- complying with the spending cap. <laughs> 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 no, it, it doesn't mean in other years this is going to be an important thing because there's certainly – years in which the legislature bumps up against the spending cap. And if you ask me to explain the spending cap, I'm going to throw my headphones down and leave. Um, I, I cannot explain the NFL spending cap, how that works. I cannot explain the Connecticut spending cap. Um, but Jepson's, Jepson's opinion, I, you know, I think there are a lot of legal authorities who said, yeah, I mean, we kind of knew this. You know. The the General Assembly uh the the constitutional amendment that was passed back in the day was broad. The General Assembly was supposed to do certain things to implement it. It never did. Blumenthal, when he was attorney general, issued an opinion saying, no, it's binding, you can assume XYZ and Jepsen came out and said, nah. How's that? How's that for a great analysis of the law?
0: That's and good. Christine, would you like to uh, expound on that? Yeah, I mean, please, I, Christine. you know,
3: well, you know um, the spending cap has been, um, as Len Fasano said, disrespected for 23 years. Um, we all knew that was the case. Um, under Roland and Rell, it was exceeded with, you know, the Democrat controlled legislature agreed to exceed it seven Absolutely. times. Um, and so the the rate of growth actually under the spending cap for the state budget has been pretty low over these past few years because it's tied to personal income growth and inflation. Um, so for 2015, we were only allowed to grow 2.98 percent under the cap. So you know, we were sitting there and taking stuff out from under the cap anyway. I mean, we moved Medicaid right. out from under the cap, and we were like, "Well, we don't want to stay count for the that." Record. I want to stay wanna. for the
2: record. I want it noted. Christine is reading from notes, and I was told there were no <laughs>
0: notes allowed.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, in a in a broader sense, I mean, first of all, I mean, Attorney General Jepson in his opinion – one thing that hasn't been noted, he also pointed out it's not an actual hat. You don't like wear the it's spending cap spending while cap. you're spending or anything like that. <laughs> you have to wear it when you're proposing bills. That was an area of confusion That's for a lot okay. of people. There is no actual spending cap. Um, <laughs> and. Other than that, I, it, I read this opinion saying this has all been a big, fat waste of time talking about the spending cap. I mean <laughs> –
2: you mean, you mean like now?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Well, no. I think we're not wasting time oh, okay. now. But I think like all the time that we spent listening to them talk about it, if in fact he's correct. And, and as Christine points out, there's been a tremendous <laughs> amount you know, uh, of sleight of hand – in in getting around it and moving things out from under it and that was all a big waste of time too if in fact it never really existed or had any legal force and it's kind of like, you know, to, I would pair it up with another of her stories, which you know, Ben Barnes also announced that there's no permanent state of period of fiscal crisis. It's like all these things they tell us about that we have to worry about, they're just not real. It's like strawberry fields. Nothing is real. Oh, I actually
0: want to get back to the end of the state of fiscal crisis, and we hadn't, uh, we hadn't uh, talked about that, but I think, Colin, one thing that I wanted to ask you about the about the spending cap, and I think you, you stated very well just there, is why do we have rules at all? I mean, what's the what is the point of anything like that, any self-imposed rules. Well, and I actually, I, I make fun of it when we in yeah. talking in terms of, say, a, a lockbox that would allow us to put money into a, a special transportation fund that could only possibly be spent on, on transportation money. And we all know that no matter how much we talk about it, that absolutely will not happen
1: if indeed the time comes when we need money to pay bills for the state. Well, I think Pat said, this whole thing was a sop to the vote to the angry voters at the time that the state income tax was implemented. And I might add, it didn't work very well. I mean, you know, they still were running around out there with these French Revolution tumbrils looking for Miles Rappaport. I mean, it wasn't like they calmed down or said, oh, there's a spending cap. (laughs) 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 In that case, we'll stop rioting on the lawn of the state capitol. I mean, nobody calmed down about it. But that was sort of the notion anyway. There'll be a spending cap, so spending won't get out of control. And it also didn't work for all the reasons that we're suggesting, which is that they basically looked at it as an encumbrance that they could probably get around and since nobody understands it very well or how, how the calculation works and what counts as the previous cycle spending that you can build on. I mean, it's just, a you know, nobody's ever really understood it, so
3: it, nobody's ever had to live by it. They are a lawless group of individuals. They are. And they, they have are, also they exempted themselves uncle. from various FOI laws. Yeah. I just want to point they that out. Yes. Uncle, they are drunk, uncle, and they
1: will come home from the bar and right, smash right, it. Right, it's sure, supposed right. to be a nation know. of laws, Paz.
2: <laughs> the, one, the one thing these things do, they do set a standard, they do set a mark where if you exceed it it allows people like us to say well you know you're you're dipping into the transportation fund that you said was off limits it is a sort of a statement of principles if it is not actually an enforceable restriction on where money can move or or not an entirely enforceable restriction. So, you know, I, I agree would agree with that. Yeah, it's a say, benchmark. Yeah, it's a benchmark. I would, you know, so it's not totally without value. You know, they're, it, they're, they're throwing down their mark and this is what we want to do. And the reason Help they us. need
3: it is, you know, partially go, going back to Jepson's decision on the spending cap is that one one legislature cannot hold another legislature right. and tell them what to do.
2: Or even itself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or even clearly. It's, so it's more of
0: like a spending guide, really, more than anything else. Uh, the sort of thing that you'd, you'd look at around the holidays. I just have to ask, and Colin brought it up, how did you both feel about, about the end? And I don't know if there's a, a celebration at the state capitol. I don't know if trumpets blared, but the end of the state of permanent fiscal crisis. Ben Barnes essentially said, I kind of didn't mean to say it the way I said it, and now there's no state of permanent fiscal crisis anymore. There's yeah, I don't
3: you, think anybody was listening by that point. So I don't know how many people heard it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, She's being much um, less charitable. And, and than he was, you know, he was, uh, you know, he was very specific that he did not ever say that in front of a group of lawmakers. He said it in a room of reporters and he regrets it every day. And, um, you know, he was he was quoting some other economist at that point. So. Well,
0: I, and I'll just say, and we've made fun of this an awful lot, but I think it sort of ties in with what Colin said earlier about this, this notion that if enough people keep trumpeting the idea that Connecticut has a bad business climate, that then you start to put into reality a bad business climate. I mean, it makes it bad by just enough people saying it. And, When the guy who is essentially the Alan Greenspan of Connecticut, you know, when his pronouncements actually mean something, when you say we're in a state of permanent fiscal crisis and it hangs around for a while, it actually has had a little bit of an impact on the way businesses think about the state, on the way lawmakers and certainly citizens think about the state.
2: Am I overstating it? No, I don't think you are. The the broader question is what structural changes need to be made to Connecticut's budgeting you know that's a, that's an awful can of worms to open up i mean once you try to make truly structural changes you have to deal with labor cost which means if you are the leader of a democratic uh majority you're potentially running the risk of uh splitting up your base um you're running the risk of disappointing constituent groups um who represent some very needy people that i think most connecticut residents would agree should be served so when you start to talk about permanent states of fiscal crisis and, and the need to make structural changes, or as the governor has said, trying to figure out what is the new normal, uh, it's easy to talk about these things, but to jump into it and and actually address it uh, is a is a politically a very horrible thing to try to do.
0: And I'll just ask you, Colin, before we move on from this. I, do, now, I've, I've been saying, obviously, it's a big deal when when the chief budget officer uh, says words like that. But he also probably just regrets that he said it. And it was just a couple of words. And I don't know if maybe we've made entirely too much of, of these words from Ben Barnes and, and what they what impact they have.
1: Probably. I I think I thought of it as sort of an insecurity blanket. You know, you never really had to worry that something was going to go wrong because things were already wrong. But, uh, you know, in a way, I, it feels a little bit like a dodge away from the essential question that we can never really wrestle with. And, I, I, and I, I know I'm oversimplifying it. But when you back up, the question really is, how much government do you want and how are you going to pay for it? Um, and I mean, that's what budgeting is. And, and so saying that we're in a permanent fiscal crisis is sort of like saying, well, we have really no way of effectively considering that that question. And he's sort of right. I mean, listen to the conversation we had in the first segment of today's show. We are in a state of permanent <laughs> fiscal crisis because, back to Steve or whatever his name is, his comment, um, we're really not willing to talk about how much government costs and how we're going to pay for it
3: well we're also on the verge of a recession here you know depending on who who you believe Shh, say that. okay um <laughs> and i think that the the economy has changed in ways and state government hasn't changed in, mm. in certain ways. Yeah. So we expect you know certain revenue streams to be there that just aren't there anymore because the economy's changed. But,
0: uh, that's so interesting, though. The economy's changed. People's spending habits have changed. The way people view uh, the housing market. Businesses
1: have adapted an awful yes. lot, and
0: you're absolutely right. The way we do stuff at the Capitol just really hasn't changed at all.
3: No, we, we have the same pots of money and we have the same pots of revenue. Same
1: yeah. rece- the only recession-proof business in Connecticut is the government.
0: All right. Well, uh, okay, so last week, legislative Democrats floated the idea of saving money by suspending the state's citizens' election program. It didn't take too long for that trial balloon to be shot down. The proposal drew criticism from former presidential candidate Lawrence Lessig, uh, who was uh, on the Colin McEnroe show. Um, let's listen to a little bit of what Lessig said, first of all.
1: Connecticut, like every state, is facing terrible difficulties because of budget constraints, um, partly because we've built into our uh, mentality, you know, a very skewed conception of how we should be raising money to support government. But, you know, put that aside. This is a real problem across the country. But we can't compromise on a principle of representative democracy in order to solve that problem because if we do, we will not have solved the problem. We will have just made the problem worse by reinforcing the power um, to skew government towards the benefit of those who fund elections.
0: Okay, so that's Lawrence Lessig speaking on Colin McEnroe's show about the Citizens' Election Program and the changes that have happened over the course of the last couple of years and the changes that were proposed there. But I know we've talked about this already, Colin. There's, there's maybe an argument to be made that the that the program that we have now isn't a program that Lawrence Lessig or anybody else would want to save at the uh, at the cost of, of having a continued state of permanent fiscal crisis.
1: Yeah, I've kind of made a resolution for December and maybe the coming year to be less of a grumpy cat than I've been lately. Uh, so I actually did take the position and just throw this thing on the tracks because it's broken. And, and that's probably too radical a statement, speaking of changing your mind. Um, however, I mean, we have to be honest about this. So um, the, the gubernatorial candidates get, if you combine their primary and their general election grants, about $8 million apiece. Um, more than that, you know, upwards of $9 million was contributed in independent expenditures that came in from the outside. So if the goal of the program at the gubernatorial level is to elect people who are not beholden to anyone, who don't owe anybody any favors, it doesn't work anymore. There's $9 million plus of favors done for them during the election cycle just in that independence uh, expenditure part of it. And then, of course, you know, they rejiggered the laws so that more money could come into the state parties, more money could go out of the state parties. Into legislative races, and you know, I'm I'm all I'm down with Lawrence Lessig, except that it's really hard. You know, Paz was just talking about the fact that we are talking about cuts to vulnerable populations. You know, to, to people who really desperately need the help of the government, and you know, I mean. I mean, just for example, to pick an egregious example, if you are running unopposed for state senate uh, in your district, like completely unopposed, I believe your grant is twenty eight point four thousand dollars. You get twenty eight thousand dollars to beat nobody. Uh, You know, (laughs) and it's it's sort of hard for me to look at. The kinds of people we talk about when we talk about vulnerable populations and say there just isn't really money for your program, but there is actually, we could actually give a candidate who doesn't have an opponent $28,000 to run this campaign.
3: Well, I would argue and, – and these are numbers from Sean Scanlon. So in 2004, which was the last election before the clean election program, the average for a state senate seat that you had to raise in order to win a state senate seat was $171,000. You know, so you know the mm. the state and the citizens' election program, to an extent, is, is working, even though um, they they've butchered it in so many ways. Yeah, I
1: think it does work in a lot of ways, and I think at the legislative level, it it has changed things. As Lessig said in the interview I did with him, I mean, legislators aren't spending all their time raising money. Um, it, Remains to be seen whether they're using that free time creatively and effectively. Uh, but at least they're not spending all their time raising money. Presumably, it diminishes the power and influence of lobbyists. That's what legislators say, that it diminishes the power and influence of lobbyists.
2: No, it, it clearly does. And I, actually, I was, I was coming to, to beat you up a little bit about your column, but you've already kind of walked back some of it. Some of it. Um, there were $33 million spent on public financing in Connecticut the last cycle. Almost half about sixteen million was spent on the governor's race uh, Republican primaries, primary and the general. This is a very good Thanksgiving argument dinner argument you can have about <laughs> what the hell did the Connecticut taxpayer get for that sixteen million dollars given all the outside money that also flowed into that race but I think you have to separate it from the legislative piece the the lobbyist prior to this were an integral part of the fundraising machinery at the Capitol. And if you think that did not influence what passed or what didn't even come up for a debate, I think that's that's naive. Now you can you can certainly debate are we getting eleven or twelve million dollars worth of good government because that's what we're spending on the legislative races. And you can certainly debate should unopposed candidates get grants. Although I will say a lot of the people who qualify for the program and then find themselves without opponent, they actually withdraw. Um, but but yeah, there are some some candidates who will accept a grant for unopposed. So there are, there are certainly tweaks that can be made. But overall, you know, there's a good argument to be made that there has been a healthy impact on the General Assembly.
0: I, I, I just wonder, Christina, because obviously this doesn't seem to be under threat during this budget crisis that we have right now. The Democrats have pulled this back off the table. But the fact that this was even suggested – As a possibility of a way – it seems as though the confidence that the legislature has in in this system as something moving forward – you see this better than I do, but if something is floated as an idea now – within 3 years it absolutely has a floor vote and people end up changing some law and that's the way things work so if this has been floated now this I'd be, i'm looking at this being on life support in a couple of years
3: i think this was swiftly killed enough and I, I i think that you know michael brandy was right in that if you suspend this program for for a year you know it it could very well disappear and and it probably would disappear and you wouldn't be able to um i guess um, rally people around the the Roland thing is never going to happen again. So Roland's not there, so there wouldn't be the support to create the system that you know got us started in the first place.
2: I think the program politically stronger is stronger as a result of this trial balloon because, particularly in the Senate Democratic Caucus, they discovered that more of their members really like this than they ever imagined. There was an assumption that going back to the old system of using, quite frankly, a lot of special interest money that incumbents have an advantage of raising money out of Hartford, um, and the assumption was the incumbents would would do great without it. Well, what they found was a lot of their members said, "No, we do not want to go back to that old system," um, because one of the things public financing does it pushes the fundraising back into the districts, the qualifying amounts. They do all have to raise, you know, a House member has to raise five grand to qualify, Senator, 15 grand. You have to raise big chunks of that out in your district. Um, And that does shift the power.
0: And I'll just say, Colin, for a brief comment, though, something we've talked an awful lot about. All this power, no matter how it works, how well it works, it all does end up being power really for major party candidates. It's really hard if you're not one of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know. You don't want to design a system where every Tom, Dick, and Jonathan Belto can show up and get public financing. On the other hand, you don't want to design a system which completely solidifies the hold that the major parties have on the system. And I I would say at the moment this does. I mean the the thresholds that they have to cross, uh, that an independent candidate or a third-party candidate uh, has to cross, are so high, uh, as to effectively exclude – almost everybody who isn't a Republican or a Democrat from public financing. Um, and, you know, the, the, I just want to reinforce what Paz said. It was really hard to talk legislators into this idea back in 04 or 05 or whenever it was. They didn't like this idea at all. Now they like it because in fact they, and the other people who like it are a lot of lobbyists because they they were tired of getting shaken down all the time, <laughs> too. So, and it wasn't like they, they were sort of saying, please let us give you money so that we can influence you. This was a very tiresome thing for them, too. Uh, Colin McEnroe from the Colin McEnroe Show Is here along with Mark Pazniokas
0: of the Connecticut Mirror and Christine Stewart of CTNewsJunkie.com. We'll be right back to talk more about some of the big news of the week in the wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable here on Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up tomorrow, continuing a holiday tradition, WNPR and Where We Live present two hours of the best radio made this year from the 2015 Third Coast Festival, presenting some winners of the annual competition featuring innovative and insightful stories. It's a lot of great radio. It happens both tomorrow at 9 o'clock and also Friday morning at 9 o'clock. I do hope you listen in, and I hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving holiday. I'm joined today by Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR, Christine Stewart, the editor of ctnewsjunkie.com, and Mark Pasniok, the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. It's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Now, last week, the U.S. House of Representatives approved the American SAFE Act, which is intended to strengthen the refugee vetting process. It comes in the wake of the Paris attacks, of course. It was a bill supported by the Republican majority, but some Democrats voted in favor of it as well, including Connecticut's Jim Himes and also Joe Courtney.
1: And what the bill basically says is at the end of that process that the Secretary of um, Homeland Security, the director of the FBI, the director of intelligence, will certify that there's no uh, security risk, period. That's it.
0: That's Joe Courtney speaking to WNPR about his decision. How did the,
1: these decisions by these two Connecticut congressmen, Democrats, both strike you, Colin? Well, I mean, they they don't have entirely safe seats, all right? It's no accident that the two— People who voted here are maybe people who feel that this is something that could be used against them. Although you could also argue that Elizabeth Esty has the least safe seat uh, and that it didn't seem to afflict her quite the same way. But, uh, you know, it's a political – to me it looks like a political calculation. My guess, knowing Joe Courtney – is that his sympathies probably lie in the other direction? I don't have as clear an understanding of who Jim Himes really is, particularly regarding an issue like this one. I, I will say, and so they've taken both taken a lot of heat about it. Courtney has gone gone on social, taken to social media uh, to try to soothe some of the concerns. I mean, a lot of people who are fans of Courtney just see this as way, way out of character for him. You know, and I will quickly say, the, the certification thing, I don't entirely understand this bill, um, but it, it does seem as though what it really does is put such a burden on Homeland Security, on the on the certifying federal entities, that they're essentially putting their heads on the chopping block if they get anything wrong, which I, I think it really does kind of turn up the, it turns up the dial. You know, we already had an incredibly uh, uh, strong vetting process. Uh, and it's probably a stronger vetting process than any country in the world. And it just piles onto that and says, also, basically, we're going to have law enforcement people risk their careers and their reputations if they get one thing wrong. You're,
2: you're asking for some magical guarantee that can't be given. And, you know, the director of the FBI has to look at this and say, really? You know, what you really can do is create a vetting process. And, and you know, you don't want to mix the apples and oranges here. The people who are coming in now are coming in through a U.N. refugee pro- process. They have to be certified as a refugee, and that takes a couple of years. And then there's multiple levels of review in the U.S., including fingerprinting. And uh, so the idea that the FBI is going to add something on top of that, that's what I haven't seen articulated. Now, the irony on the politics of it. The only members of the Connecticut delegation who are taking heat are Jim Himes and Joe Courtney. So if they did this because they thought it was politically safe, there's some irony in there. There's a little bit of irony in there. Yes, Christine? Uh
3: yeah, no, I mean I think that this this process as it stands now even before this piece of legislation was, you know, we're we're talking two or three years and um and on its face the Syrian refugees are it's going to be a little bit harder for the FBI and Homeland Security to do the background checks that they need to do on these refugees because the U.S. has not been a presence in Syria. The U.S. has not been on the ground in Syria like they were in Iraq. So the Iraqi... Um, refugee. It was a little bit different.
1: And I I think we should mention that this stands in stark contrast to the examples that set by Dan Malloy, who probably has the ultimate safe seat, one that he probably doesn't want anymore. I mean, he's probably not going to run for governor again, but he's been really great on this issue. You know, he's been really strong. Now, there may be a lot of reasons at the national level, the DGA level and stuff like that, why he's being great in this issue. But I don't care. You know, he's been great on the issue, ranging from what he said about what our refugee policy is to going down to the mosque where the shots were fired. Um, you know, he's he's been good. And, and how is that? I mean, you, we've seen this from
0: Governor Malloy before. He takes a very strong stance on an issue like this, as he has around, say, gun control. And, you know. For an awful lot of the flack that the governor can take about the way he presents himself on many, many other issues, it seems as though, as Colin has suggested, Paz, that this is something that has shown up very well for the governor, not just here, but all across the country as he is out doing his DGA
2: stuff. And I would not suggest that the governor was driven purely by politics. But, you know, on MSNBC, somebody said, well, this is politically difficult. They said it to Malloy. And I would say, Not really. It helps the governor with his base. It's a reminder to Democrats, some of whom, quite frankly, are a little annoyed with him right now over, over some fiscal issues. It's a reminder to the Democratic base, oh, yeah, there are other things at stake when you elect somebody governor. And I think this is one of those moments where there are a lot of members of the Democratic base who say, yeah, we're kind of glad he's governor.
3: He's also used it to talk about gun control. So he's also used it to bring attention to this piece of legislation that would um, ban uh, people who are on the 700,000 people on the terrorist watch list from being able to buy firearms.
0: Yeah, it's, it's one of these fairly new democratic strategies to really get at the gun control issue and align it with something that everyone wants to do is cut down on the possibility of
1: terrorism on U.S. soil. Exactly. Yeah. It's always great when somebody leads, right? <laughs> I mean, lead. Don't get lead. Don't read the waters. Don't test the wind. Lead. Well, I I just have to – before we move too far away, uh,
0: Paz, Senator Blumenthal went to the state capitol to discuss something that wasn't this issue, genetically modified fish. But then he was asked questions about Syrian refugees and immigration. What what happened to this? This is one of those press conferences that wasn't supposed to be about this stuff.
2: It was wonderful, you know, (laughs) to see stuff go off script. Um, Senator Blumenthal was was ambushed, although as I described it, you know, albeit very politely, um, by – some people who are opposed to U.S. immigration policies, particularly having to do with Syrian refugees. Um, It was an odd event in that they were mixing a couple different immigration issues. There was a woman whose daughter was murdered. And the uh, accused is a Haitian person who was here illegally, did time in a Connecticut prison, ICE was supposed to deport him after he did his time. They haven't been able to get Haiti to take him. So there was that issue about how does ICE work, which, by the way, Senator Blumenthal, Senator Murphy and others have tried to intervene on behalf of, of this woman. And then, But so that got joined with the general anger over the Syrian refugees. So there was a woman named Laurie – uh, Hopkins, Hopkins Kavanaugh, who was the Republican candidate in the second district, uh, and she has formed you know, the American Liberty Center in Connecticut to try to fight this issue. So you had a little bit of political theater. Uh, Senator Blumenthal, I don't believe his pulse rate went up um, a single <laughs> beat. You know, and he just smiled and said, thank you. And, uh, you know, I'd be just- happy to meet with you and <laughs> –
1: but, you know, back to Joe it, Courtney, that was his opponent, yeah. and uh, so, I mean, that may have something. And the fact that somebody is doing that kind of rabble-rousing and demagoguery right under his nose may have something to do with and
2: what she has did. she has a radio show at Eastern Connecticut. I uh, know how those radio yeah,
3: people yeah, are. There are. There are two oh, dueling rallies on, on Saturday. If, you know, they're both at the state capitol if, if people want to if, go. If you don't want to go
0: out for a small business Saturday, <laughs> you can go do that. Okay, Christine, we've just got a, a couple seconds left here. What's one thing you're thankful for?
3: Oh, I'm thankful for my daughter.
0: Congratulations Thank on your beautiful you. daughter being born this year <laughs> and happy Thanksgiving to you. Uh, Paz, how about you? What, what's something you're thankful for this year?
2: I am thankful. Both my daughters are on their way home right now. But I have to say after spending uh, a couple hours in a bar last night saying goodbye to some people who are leaving uh, America's continuously published newspaper, mm-hmm. I am thankful that I am still in this business and people have given me the opportunity to, to remain in this business. As Colin, so, thank said, you.
1: Yeah, as Colin said before, a lot of really good people leaving a really good newspaper. Colin, how about you? I'm thankful that I declined the offer to become the punter for the Berlin High School football team. Uh, it seemed really attractive, and I did give it some serious consideration, but it would not have been a wise move. All right. Well, I, I have to say I'm thankful for the team That produces Where We Live
0: Which includes Tucker Ives Lydia Brown Betsy Kaplan And Josh Naleya. I'm thankful for our Technical producer Kion Wolf Who always makes everything Sound so good And looks so good With her pictures I'm thankful to, uh, for our Digital editor Heather Brandon Who makes sure that Everything is done so perfectly For our WNPR.org website I'm thankful that Katie Talarski Is not only the Executive producer Of Where We Live But also back in the office It's good to have you back uh, I'm thankful to our Interns who give so much Of their time Zach Lasala And Nate Gagnon Stephanie Reef and uh, Leda Quast. I'm thankful for the smart reporters and writers and professors who come on The Wheelhouse each Wednesday to talk about the news of the week, most especially Paz and Christine. Thank you both very much. And I'm thankful to get to do this every week with one of the smartest people I know, Colin McEnroe, who sits to my left here. I'm thankful to CTN for taking pictures of the back of my head ever balding year after year. Thankful for uh, for them coming in and taking pictures of this. And I'm thankful to you for listening to WNPR and to Where We Live. To all, a happy Thanksgiving. Please enjoy Enjoy the long weekend and drive safely if you're traveling far. I'm John Dankosky. This is Where We Live.